0: Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at On the Record, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.
1: My guest today is Pete Blackshaw. His professional background spans public policy, interactive marketing, and brand management. He is Executive Vice President of Digital Strategic Services for Nielsen. His strategy group works with many of the world's top brands and corporations to develop cohesive, consumer-centered digital programs and strategies. He is the author of Satisfied Customers Tell Three Friends, Angry Customers Tell 3,000, Running a business in today's consumer-driven world, and he writes a biweekly column for Advertising Age. Uh, it is my pleasure to have him with me for the second time on this podcast. Welcome.
2: Thanks for inviting me,
1: Pete. I want to talk to you about getting buy-in and resources for uh, uh, a tool like Blog Pulse inside of the organization. Uh, what what does it take to? convince people within an organization uh, that they need to be doing something like this?
2: Well, I think there's a number of ways that you can approach it, and often it depends on the stakeholder that you are approaching. I mean, I generally try to appeal to things that they've already bought into. Companies spend a lot of money on PR issues, um, managing relationships with um, financial analysts, I mean, investor relations, um, you know, like development, consumer affairs—you name it. And what I typically try to do is just help the buyer appreciate that this notion of internet monitoring is a very logical extension of what they're already doing, and in fact, it's a vitamin for doing what they're already bought into even better. So far from trying to sell the new and the sexy, which can be you know really difficult, especially now. Um, I think that the, uh, you know, the tried and true. So, for example, if you're on the PR side, um, massive amounts of resources and headcount are already dedicated to managing relationships with the traditional media. Um, Today, you have over 200 reporters in the New York Times that have Twitter accounts or extend their voice vis-a-vis blogs or other social media platforms. So convincing an executive that you need to have a thoughtful listening apparatus around the traditional media that, you know, that's now kind of double teamed as social media is not that terribly difficult. Um, You know, similarly brands have always been very sensitive about the cost and consequences of bad news and they tend to be, um, you know, whatever it takes to kind of protect the brand. And if you can simply make a case that um, listening processes and, protocols and platforms provide better radar to preempt sandbag or manage you know negative news gone viral then it's much easier to um you know you know you know make the case so that's that's a couple approaches obviously anything you can do to demonstrate that there really is actionable value in the data can go a very long way and frankly you don't have to work that hard i mean today's consumers are infinitely revealing of brand value you simply have to have tools and people that can pull out that value but the degree to which consumers are articulating unmet needs vis-a-vis social media i wish i want if only is is mind boggling um, so, if you really organize it in the right way, the value proposition can be extremely clear. Those are a couple initial thoughts.
1: Pete, the cost of of Blog Pulse is not inconsequential, right? I mean, what is what is the cost?
2: Well, so your Blog Pulse is actually a free tool that we make available to anyone. But I think what you're referring to in general is just using listening tools and platforms whether it's you know what we call brand pulse or we have an automated tool called my buzz metrics that we make available to you know agencies and clients and there's obviously tools like you know radiant six and visible technologies but um but your question is how do you justify the
1: cost or no well, what, was- what is the cost first off
2: well it really varies i mean sometimes it can be it really depends on how many people you want to use the tool um, how much data you're collecting, how much workflow integration there is with base processes. But, I mean, we've gone from, um, you know, sometimes a starter kit, if you will, might be in the, you know, $25,000 range to get started, but typically we're dealing in six figures for major enterprise clients who really have some pretty advanced needs. And, again, I think clients today are have kind of moved beyond looking at social media in isolation. I think the big issue now is that how do you... Marry it with other sources, which is good news. It's, it's a, bad news is that it makes it a little bit more complex and complicated to uh, set it up. The good news is that it really shines new light on the data. In fact, I think that you know if you can juxtapose internet monitoring data with sales data, just it really just informs decision making lately. we've been doing a lot of mashups between traditional media spending um and uh, and buzz or what I like to call paid media plus earned media and looking at, you know, are there interdependencies, is one driving the other, uh, or contradicting one another. And that's where, if you start kind of building those systems, it gets a bit more uh, a bit more complex. And then recently, there's been a lot of clients that have started to integrate their CRM data, so their call center data, which I think is a really smart move. If, in fact, your brand's ready to do that. But I think, you know, that's kind of the, the gold standard, in my view, if you're kind of taking all of your call center indices, whether it's phone. Or email or FAQ, and marrying that up with social media data. And again, that's a higher, higher complexity bar, but tends to be um, worth the investment based on my experience. So, a long way of saying a huge,
1: a huge range. Pete, when you say you know it's it's twenty five thousand and up, where is that money coming from? Because you know it's it's this is a new area. So, what budget does it typically come from? Well again it depends on who you're selling to. I mean
2: we've got a pretty broad spectrum of buyers. I mean for a while it was often the the progressive PR team that was saw social media as a logical extension of influencer management. Now it's a lot more complex. Market research sees it as a better way of informing market research. They're often using internet monitoring before they embark upon more costly market research or shopper surveys and they see a lot of efficiencies they may say boy it really pays to listen to the early radar because it might make our existing processes more efficient so they'll you know allocate digital teams are actually finding budget for it because a lot of this so you know it's almost hard to decouple the word social media um, or buzz from digital and so they see it as a you know a critical um, way of evaluating marketing practices so sometimes the money shows up there increasingly, certainly with some of the deals I've done recently, um, again, the call center folks are starting to step up much more aggressively in the area. And they're typically not a big source of revenue. I think um, they're generally kind of the neglected stepchild in the organization. But they are, um, you know, I think in this world where the vocal consumer is more valued, I think you're going to see more spending power come from that group. In fact, I think marketing groups are going to largely delegate to um, those organizations.
1: Ba- based on uh, your knowledge of of the industry you're in, the industry you compete in, and just, just you know, could you estimate or guess sort of what the breakdown of customer base is percentage-wise for these types of service? Would you say the majority is PR, the majority is marketing, or, I mean, if you had to guess percentage-wise, well, what guess would it the be? the
2: majority is marketing broadly defined. Again, I, I see... You know, in this environment of consumer control, I think PR and marketing are living pretty closely together. So, um, but if you decoupled them, I'd say you know, I'd say most of the money is coming from the brand manager, um, and that doesn't mean that that that's the person who funds it. You know, the the, the marketers, but in in some cases, the PR manager may actually. Manage the relationship, but I'd say you know, and that's intuitively that makes sense. The mark, the money today is really in the hands of the, you know, the marketing leader, but they serve a lot of different stakeholders. Um, You know, typically, so for example, we, you know, where I think buzz monitoring takes on the most value is around a new product launch, and there's so much money riding. On the launch, on the new news, that I think brand managers or VP of marketing or even CMOs take a very take a, a bit more of a, a more generous view of what's necessary to monitor that campaign, and so therefore, it's not necessarily um, a major leap for them to um, you know sign a check and and, and you know kind of empower the organization with kind of a listening monitor and
1: service. talk to us for a minute about the stakeholder community. Um, you know, what is that stakeholder community and what are the most common pockets of resistance?
2: Well, for a lot of categories, the biggest, I mean, it's, I mean, boy, I mean, I think just about everybody's a relevant stakeholder social media and now, so it's really, it's quite, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's really everyone. I mean, I think you can say there's, um, you know, more marketing-centered, you know, marketing, market, market research, PR, product development as a critical stakeholder. Um, investor relations, I think, is becoming really big because financial analysts have very transparent access to this type of data. So there's a real cost of not being on top of it. Um I think you know, even legal departments are taking a much more aggressive view of the data. Risk management groups are looking at it because there's, you know, you know, there's just a lot of incriminating data that's kind of flowing through um, you know, the, the pipeline out there. I think in terms of barriers, um, I think legal is a barrier, probably not as much as before. Um, I think the other barrier is just like organizational confusion over ownership. Um, just, you know, there's, you know, everyone's kind of bought in, you know, uh, but nobody really knows who owns it. And that can be, you know, it can be very frustrating on the, on the vendor side. And you just got to get kind of a little bit creative about how you, uh, <laughs> about how you kind of, you know, rationalize the, uh, um, the spend. I think there, there's still for many a culture of disbelief that does this really matter? Is this really moving the needle? It's, it's not as difficult I wouldn't say it's as big a barrier as it was several years ago. I mean, this content is so transparent. And I think there is a much greater recognition that the buyer funnel is significantly impacted by this, by this, this conversation. So, but you know, there's always pockets of, 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 of cynicism. Um, so, and then sometimes like your biggest enemy is just apathy. I mean, if everything's going pretty well with the brand, um, they just may not feel a big motivation if the brand gets slapped a few times or publicly embarrassed or it's got a recall or a crisis or just something that 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 typically puts everyone in almost autopilot mode from a up this is a no brainer we got to do it
1: so if there is a a lot of negative um information out there negative mentions that becomes you know a, a driver for for somebody to make a decision
2: Well, I think the wake up calls really do matter and and the nice thing is that, you know, they'll they really do influence the top. I mean, there's a lot of cases where the CMOs or CEOs have basically said stop overthinking and of course it impacts the business. It's like of course it does. It's like half every 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 credible newspaper reporter has a cheat sheet of bloggers, how can you tell me that it doesn't matter? You know, so there is a lot of high level intuition that's now entering the space. And I think that as more marketers develop their own personal intimacy with social media, you know, I, you know, my personal Twitter account, my personal blog that I built in five seconds, I think that is also providing a much greater, um, um, you know, recognition. Um, You know, now at the same time, at the same time, I mean, there is a kind of a bit of a commoditization taking place in the space. There's like free tools coming up the yin yang and there's you know so you know at the same time that companies are, brands are kind of coming around to recognize the importance they're also enjoying the fruits of of a lot of, of the free <laughs> so therefore if you're in the business you've really got to demonstrate the value add you just can't sell tools and like you know wait for them to sign the check again you have to really um, work with them to demonstrate how it's useful, how it's meaningful, how it can serve as a mission-critical KPI and the like.
1: Pete, what are the toughest objections to overcome? Like, is there a common objective or an objective maybe not so common that when it arises, you kind of say, you kind of slump and think, oh, my God, this is going to sink the ship? I mean, is there yeah, like, in, what regulated,
2: is I mean, in regulated industries, it's really tough because, you know, listening is liability, and once that percolates to a level, it's just like you might as well just close shop and move on to the next category. I think healthcare, pharma really struggle. We do a lot of business in that category, but there, are, there is a lot of um, sensitivity about, you know, what you know and what you don't know. And that can really complicate what you and I might consider to be really benign decisions like a simple reporting tool. Um, So those are areas. And again, we do a lot of business in the category, but I'd say that it's it's probably underdeveloped because a lot of those, you know, because a lot of those issues.
1: We're talking to Pete Blackshaw. He is the executive vice president of digital strategic services for Nielsen. And when we come back, we are going to talk to him about uh, organizing for social media. The top-rated, longest-running social media
0: communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August, 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com.
1: Pete, I want to get your thoughts on how an organization needs to structure itself for social media, because in the past, you know, a department like PR and marketing were essentially mouthpieces, and now they're getting this information which can be integrated back into something like product development. Um, You know, what sort of challenges does that present PR and marketing with now that they've got information that could be useful to the people making the products, but in the past those people were not really receptive to getting feedback from marketing and PR.
2: Well, I don't see it as a challenge. I mean, I see it as much more of an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for the PR department to be more relevant. And where there's more mouth to feed, there's more (laughs) value to be had. I think the toughest organizational decision, and I have a little bit of a bias here. This is kind of very central to my book. I think that the future organizational model has to wrap around consumer affairs. And I think to date in the march towards social media we've largely danced around it. And it's starting to get really conspicuous. So you'll have brands where the CMO or the VP of external relationship it, you know is kind of, you know, waxing poetic about conversation and dialogues, but their feedback forms have a big don't talk to me sign on it or You know, it's impossible to reach the 800 line. And I just think that um, if you kind of buy into this notion that consumers are in control, they're shaping the dialogue, they're influencing the purchase funnel, you have to build a model where the, um, the existing feedback pipe is very central. And I do believe, in my heart of hearts, and I know this from having done a ton of consulting with companies, that the folks that, Typically, man the front lines of the phone or the email feedback. Although they're treated like stepchildren in the organization, they tend to have the best skills at managing very volatile, often emotional consumers. And I think that skill set is easily transferable to not easily, but it's 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 transferable to the Twitter page, to the Facebook page. And I think the model that emerged to emerge is one of I'd say the first two groups that really need to collapse into one another is kind of PR and, and, um, and, and consumer relations. And I think the opportunity for PR is just enormous because I think the direct feedback pipe is also fabulous early warning for, you know, issues that are coming around. The reality is that consumers always try to talk to the company first if they're upset about a product flaw, and those early signals can really help you to better forecast how much pain you're going to see on YouTube a couple of weeks later or a couple of hours later. And so I think that, you know, this integration around voice of the consumer is just really critical. And I think there's all sorts of sub-levels of activity that can be embarked upon, like influencers, you know, figuring out who the influencers are. Develop, you know, I'm a big believer in developing brand advocacy scorecards. I think, I think that is the most important metric. I mean, some people use Net Promoter. I actually am kind of working on a different way of thinking about it. But, but whatever it might be, you know, thinking about those KPIs that have common ground across both, you know, consumer relations and and the call center. And then I think along the way, it's how do you package that data in a way that's meaningful to other stakeholders. Um, whether it's market research, which typically is looking for you know, um, you know, kind of unmet needs or key consumer insights, um, product development may be looking for um, better understanding on how products are used in real time. You know, the digital team might be looking for things where they can make some very quick interventions um, and the like. So that's kind of um, you know, that's kind of a you know, I'd say that's a starting point.
1: So you're suggesting, I, I guess, I just want to make sure I, I understand you here, that the information gleaned from the group in the organization using the measurement tool is really just a way for them to educate others inside the organization about the potential of this information. Because you, you mentioned, you know, it depends how they package that information. So but the, the minute you say package it, what, what I'm thinking is, well, wait a minute, PR or marketing or consumer relations, whoever has access to the monitoring tool is seeing all this real-time information, and the minute they package it and start distributing it internally, it's stale. So, I mean, do do you eventually have to give everyone access? Well, I think, boy, I mean, you can certainly just,
2: if you develop a great tool that, you know, you can make that available, but I do think some level of value-added packaging interpretation, you know, there's the what, the so what, and the what next, and I think that The folks that own the listening dashboard can certainly provide a lot of value on the so what and the what next. How how does that look?
1: Tell me what that looks like.
2: well, the what might just be a basic reporting tool that's got all the data, and perhaps it's organized by a number of key performance indicators or types of data collection. I'm monitoring X number of brands plus competitors. I'm looking at brand advocacy. I'm looking at sentiment. I'm looking at dispersion. Um, I'm looking at certain websites. Um, you know, it's just like it's a, it's a really well-organized data bank. Then there's the so what, which is like, well, why the hell does it matter? Um, and that's where, you know, some level of extra analysis can really help, especially if you're putting the data under a relatively new stakeholder's nose. You know, you can't – don't expect that the product developer is going to know exactly how to use it or – The market research person may be caught in this Neanderthal world of rep panel where, oh, my gosh, these are out influential consumers. We only focus on consumers in the fat middle of the bell curve. And so what factor kind of helps to put perspective on that. And then there's the what next factor, which is like, what do you do with, you know, okay, what next? Do we change the website? Do we, um, you know, retool our overall strategy? Do we, um, you know, and I think, you know, I think anyone who's kind of owning the listening tools should really be good consultants on top of it. That's pretty much what we do here at Nielsen. But there's a lot of that capability that brands can develop on their own too.
1: Up to this point in the conversation, we've pretty much been talking about measurement as it applies to B two C organizations. Is there any are there any inherent differences between measuring for B two B versus measuring for B two C?
2: I don't think so. Honestly, I used to labor to make the distinction in years past, but I think the same principles apply. I mean, even at Nielsen, we're monitoring our own buzz, and, you know, the number of marketing suppliers that are out there creating conversation, generating reactions, the number of our clients that are out there in social media venues saying good or bad things with us provides us with so much data to organize and interpret and act upon no different than a brand that is looking from the consumer angle. The reality is that these um, you know, this these rules of expression are kind of like equal opportunity employers both to the end consumer and to any small business or vendor or supplier that's in the space. Just just think about it. There's over I think there's over seventy five thousand people on Twitter that are labeled social media experts. Most of them source or derive from our industry they're like you and me multiplied by 75,000 and so there's you know I would say is that consumer business consumer no but are they is it kind of working on the same principles yes do I lose sleep worrying about what they're going to say about us tomorrow you bet I mean just think about it have you ever given a speech recently where they have like 50 people in the audience tweeting they're not average consumers they're just they're like that's your B2B channel
1: Let's let's talk for a minute about building bridges within the uh, organization. Do you see social media in any way integrating the organization more effectively? I mean, is it sort of – and do you have any stories you can tell us about that?
2: Well, I just – I mean, I think what, what's inspired me most in looking at social media has been how it's begun to kind of transform the organization. I think the internal application of – the tools, um, you know, internal use of blogs, you know, even the things that aren't available externally. Kind of fresh thinking about what we used to call internets. Now they're like these crowdsourcing utilities. But I, I do think social media is enabling much greater free flow of information and to some extent fulfilling a lot of our romantic notions of internets from like 10 years ago. We never quite realized we never could get them outside of the tech department. And today, I think there's a whole different psychology. I don't want to overhype the progress because I still think when you do things internally, you're subject to all sorts of legacy rules and processes and you know the techies still have probably greater leverage and control than they should. But nonetheless, it is, is, you know, I would say that the ice is thawing and things are moving, you know, really quickly. And I'm sure in the process of your interviews, you're going to find people that truly believe the greatest innovation taking place right now is internally within companies. And I frankly think we're just at the beginning. I don't even think companies have gotten to the first inning of what crowdsourcing can bring to the table. Um, So I think there's... Just tons of room for improvement, and personally, that's what excites me most. You know, it's to some extent, you know, you almost use the. uh, What I often see is, you know, companies will you'll finally get them to start, you know, listening to blog buzz, but they get really inspired by what they see, and they start to think, "Gosh, what if we kind of did something like that internally?"
1: We're talking to Pete Blackshaw. He's the executive vice president of Digital Strategic Services for Nielsen. And when we come back, we're going to talk to him about optimizing your marketing department for social media.
0: On the Record Online is the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference. To hear in-depth one-on-one interviews with PRSA conference keynoters, presenters, and panelists, search keyword PRSA on our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Join us October 16th through 19th in Washington, D.C. for the PRSA 2010 International Conference.
1: Pete, um, I'd like to get your thoughts on how social media and the information derived from open source um, channels forces uh, a marketing department to perhaps restructure itself. Does it? Or does it, I mean, are there inherent changes that need to be made to conventional marketing departments organizationally, hierarchically um, to adapt to social media?
2: Well it doesn't change it overnight, but it definitely inspires change in ways that other activities don't. I mean again, I think anything that you know my general rule of thumb that you know any effort to stay close to the consumer, the customer um, you know inevitably kind of inspires you know new thinking, new directions, and I think that um you know organizations are clearly kind of rationalizing around this. Um, area and i and i don 't think there's like a cookie cutter solution. a lot of it really depends on who's leading it what 's the context. I think that brands where I think most of the change will derive is around things like new product launches where there's just a lot of money on the line, as I mentioned earlier, and um you know there'll be some inherent efficiencies of just staying really, really close to the conversation, you know, optimizing as as you go. But the um, I think the potential for organizational change is huge. It does require a decent amount of leadership. I think that it won't just happen organically. At some point, a senior leader needs to see what's going on and kind of egg it on or push it, push it along. And, um, you know, the good news is that I do think there's like a lot of senior level officers that are doing exactly that. They see the potential. And they also know that, the story is marketable. I mean, I think the whole notion of, you know, we're an agile, flexible, in-touch, sense-and-respond organization is a really powerful marketing proposition. So I think one of the, you know, one of the drivers of change is almost like, boy, if we can kind of get to that level, that's a better selling proposition for us.
1: When, when you think about um, what skills people in an organization need to develop to take advantage of social media, Uh, What are they, and how does an organization reskill itself to come up to speed on social media?
2: Well, I think CRM is the most important skill, not, you know, did you start a blog or did you tweet? I think just intimacy with, um, you know, customer relationship marketing or management is really, really important. At the end of the day, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is just, you know, you know, managing relationships with consumers who bring a different source of value to the table. And then the value may be the virality. It might be the value of bringing the good idea to the table. But um it, it kind of all comes down to those boring fundamentals of, you know, customer relationship management. And so I'd say that people that really are, have that nailed is key. I'd say people that have, you know, certain foundational skills and listening to the consumer, um are really important. I mean, again, I don't want to, if someone comes into the game with, boy, incredible experience having created a Facebook page, that has got 20,000 fans or has a blog. I mean, I I think those really are good too, because I think that people that do social media tend to be really, um, intuitive marketers. They may not have all the training of, um, the four P's or the five P's, but they, they kind of get it. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of, of, of all of those things.
1: Um, you know, uh, the Hurt Locker was the best picture um, this year at the Academy Awards. And it was interesting, in the acceptance speech, the producer said, um, you know, thank you so much. This was, uh, we were so glad that we, I'm paraphrasing here, we were so glad that we didn't have to, uh, you know, deal with uh, the studio. And we weren't basically building a picture based on audience survey. Um, what dangers do you think too much information or uh, let me rephrase that what dangers do you think uh, on a plethora of information about you know what consumers think about a product uh, what what dangers might they present to companies?
2: Well, I think companies can get themselves in the paralysis as they do too much research on the front end, and I think the um, especially if it's research that may be a little bit dated in terms of methodology um you know i think you know what benefits players like the hurt locker you know to some extent they're not constrained or shackled by the big media spending (laughs) you know habit (laughs) you know to some extent they just didn't have a lot of money from the get-go so they had to think you know very non-traditionally in terms of how to uh you know, drive conversation. In fact I think I even recall reading that they were just leafleting people saying, like, check it out. Now I think what ultimately helped them was just what helps any brand around word of mouth is this it was a good product and people talked about it. And there's some point at which incremental intervention doesn't amount to a hill of beans compared to just a good product is worth talking about. So I think that really helped them. It's not to say that, you know, social media couldn't further advance it, but they had that that core ingredient in you know in place but do i believe that brands forfeit a lot of opportunities because they're overly analytical or test everything to death i mean absolutely
1: when you look at an organization like apple which seems to put most of its marketing muscle into traditional advertising and then the rest of the spend you know rather than transparency and conversation seems to go into product performance you know how important is product performance versus the conversation. Um,
2: See, I think they go hand in hand, and I'm kind of, um, you know, Apple's a really interesting case study because I'm not sure they have, you know, you know what a lot of us social media consultants would call the social media roadmap. You know, I'm not even sure they obsessed with that. I'm not even sure they have a position along those lines. But I will say this. They really understand intuitively how both, winning products and great experiences drive conversation and you know it's kind of amazing <laughs> you know there'll, there'll be brands that like preach word of mouth and social media to the cows come home and they and they just won't get the obvious stuff done i mean i think about like apple every time they launch a product what do they do really well they just they use their website as a great source of build up and diffusion They always have brilliant videos that people love to share. I mean, that's the one thing that I've just analyzed the heck out of all their product launches. And they're just – it's not just that they have evangelists; They really create the type of content that people want to share around product. Now, is that a social media strategy or is that just a brand experience or is that just good old-fashioned, you know, wow your ambassadors? You know, I'm not really sure, but um, they really – they continue to get really good dividends, um, and again, they you know they, they kind of got that those core experience those core requirements in place. They've got great product, and they've got great experiences. But again, if you kind of interviewed them, they probably wouldn't you know tell you that they have this social media roadmap. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But uh, but 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 they get phenomenal pass along. Now there are some areas where they definitely have opportunities. They probably could you know you know. Listen to consumers better, they could um, uh, yeah, we didn't give them eight plus on their eight hundred line, although they do apply a very smart strategy to the genius bar, the assumption being that customer service might just be a good media generator for them if they execute it well. But yeah, Apples is a, absolute Apple security. Now the Apple is also a brand that kind of leverages the power of mystique, and although we romanticize everything being open and free, the reality is a lot of word of mouth is also driven by Mystique—the things that we don't have access to—come um, from Cincinnati. And we've always struggled with how to build an online identity. And some guy a couple of days ago created a site called Secret Cincinnati, and literally within like ten days, they got it from zero to twenty thousand numbers. You know, don't even know there are twenty thousand people in Cincinnati on social networks, and but you know it's all like that whole notion of secret. And I think Apple kind of builds on that whole mystique—you know, what's behind the secret door. So there's a lot of ways of cutting this.
1: Is there a secret Cincinnati? There really is. Well it's actually it
2: seems an unbelievable story. They actually they built so much momentum. They got this SWAT team that over the weekend vowed to create a really killer site that, you know, where you could they would catalog all the secrets in Cincinnati and they they kind of over like a seventy two
1: hour period they actually are in the process of unveiling a website. What that are I'm the sure. best kept secrets of Cincinnati?
2: Oh, Madame's Pool, where I live. You know, Skyline Chili. There's like the hundreds of them.
1: You know, who would have guessed? Skyline Chili?
2: <laughs> there you go. I oh. <laughs> I'm from California, so I'm just like it's still it's still I still do double take. But yeah, you try it's addictive. Who would have guessed?
1: <laughs> so, um, final question: um, yeah. If I if I came to you and I said, or if anyone came to you and they said, uh, Pete, we're we're trying. We know this stuff works. We we get what you're saying. We're with you. You're preaching to the converted here. But, for, but we're just having the toughest time gaining buy-in uh, from our stakeholders in the organization. Uh, what would your advice to me be?
2: Well, I would help them to find places where they can, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, I think the – I mean, number one, I would, you know, I would try to be as aggressive as possible to help them um, – get a taste, you know, if they need to kind of drive some trial, you know, sometimes you just have to be really aggressive and, you know, try to make the, try to make the pricing work. But short of that, I think also just finding other areas where this is actually a better substitute. You know, I, I often will do ROI analysis that says, okay, the average focus group is going to cost you 20 grand when you add it all up, travel, moderator, summaries, you know, and, and and for 20 grand, you could get access for a year to uh to my buzz metrics or something like that i mean you know you almost have to like put those benchmarks in front of them and suddenly like oh well well if you think about it that way that's not that big a deal or you um you analyze their new product launch and say oh my gosh do you realize that you know you're you know you're spending three million dollars for agencies to go find you influencers you know don't you think you should have some auditing on the back of that to make sure that you're not you know Throwing your money away. Oh. But, but
1: you're kind of at a disadvantage because when you say Rob Peter to pay Paul, it's not like you can say, hey, let's not spend the money on conventional TV, you know, Nielsen anymore because you're part of the Nielsen family. And the truth is, I think a lot yeah, of people do sell, little sell little that, that,
2: that way. A fair, there's a little bit of that. But, you know, I think uh, but, you know, but listen, I think Nielsen kind of made that bet when they brought us into the family. I think they're sort of, you know, I think all the research firms that have started to integrate. Buzz tools have kind of accepted that, hey, listen, this is going to be an emerging form of research, and you know, it, it may actually serve as a substitute for other processes, but you know, we can't afford, we can't use that as an excuse not to kind of modernize. So yeah, I think that's, that's a, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's, that's a fair point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not, i much, I seriously doubt research budgets are going to increase overall, so it's going to be a matter of like, you know, what it replaces.
1: We've been talking to Pete Blackshaw. He's the Executive Vice President at Digital Strategic Services for Nielsen. His book, Satisfied Customers Tell Three Friends, Angry Customers Tell Three Thousand, is available at Amazon. And we will have a link to it uh, on the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Pete, thanks for doing this. Terrific. You've been listening
0: to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at